0: Mmm no
1: no no, no. no. yeah when you're in never beach and you need type food you gotta ride to the garden when you're in never beach and you need type food you gotta
2: ride check check to check, the check. Garden. when you're looking for a tree trillion- Cause this restaurant can't be beat Best high in La ocean, Right next to the ocean All your tasty favorites The Blue White Podcast. I'm Josh Michaels. I'm Ryan Little. This is a very big deal. We are thrilled to have two guests on the line remotely today. The first, you may have heard of him, Senator Mike Gravel, a 2020 candidate for the Democratic nomination to be President of the United States. Hashtag Gravelanche. And we've also got on the line Kauai prosecutor Justin Collar, who is a dear friend of ours, but also a family friend of the Gravels. And he's going to share the story of how that met, and it's very adorable.
0: Yeah. uh, Recently, my wife and my son and I were taking a family vacation to visit our mother-in-law in in California. And this was, I think, the day after the the Gravel teens started tweeting. And I I remembered seeing them tweet something at Nate Silver. And I was thinking to myself, oh, wow, I, I did not see Mike Gravel getting into this race. And so I was talking to my mother-in-law about this in California, and she said, oh, I'm in a book club with his wife. Huh. Uh, let's see if he can come over later this week and have a little wine and cheese and crackers. And so three days later, we sat down in uh, in Carmel with with Mike and his wife, Whitney, and my mother-in-law and my son and my wife, and had a delightful time. And, and Mike told us about uh, his story and his road and uh, shared uh, his uh, his vision for citizen power and direct democracy. And it was just a fascinating conversation. So I'm, I'm so happy to help connect him with uh, the folks uh, like uh, Ryan and Josh who have a platform to, to amplify that message. And uh, you know, for me, it's, it's, it, it was a real delightful experience. So I'm just happy to connect everyone. Well, I, have,
3: I want to add to that, that, uh, that not only that, but that uh, the first question I asked, Justin, when we walked in a room and knew he was from Hawaii, I said, do you know Tulsi Gabbard? <laughs> and he said, yes, and we're good friends. And so I, I said, well, I, she's the person I admire the most uh, as a national figure uh, seeking the president, the White House. Uh, I can't tell you how impressed I am with Tulsi.
1: Senator Gravel represented the great state of Alaska in the United States Senate between 1969 and 1981. Before that, he was Speaker of the Alaskan State House. He ran for President in 2008 and was the highlight of the debates. And he wants to do it all over again. So we're going to start by playing your hashtag Gravelanche launching video. Uh, the audio alone is great, but listeners, if you want to watch it, it's in the pinned tweet on at Mike Gravel's Twitter account.
3: But let's maybe bring up the topic of the day, which is the Green New Deal. How much will this cost? That's unclear. How will we pay for it? Unknown. It's not realistic. Because there's no way to pay for it. It's immoral. The younger generation now tells me how tough things are. Give me a break. No, no. I have no empathy. I'm guided by the beauty of our weapons. I think Medicare for all is one of the possible paths
2: so i decided i was going to start prosecuting parents for truancy this was a little controversial in san francisco (laughs) he did ask you yes or no would you support free college for all
3: i am not for free four-year college for all No. human beings are being killed as i speak to you tonight killed as a direct result of policy decisions we as a body Have made this approach of war on drugs has not succeeded. We've spent billions of dollars on it. And we fill up our prisons to the point where we're the embarrassment of the world. We're supposed to be a democracy. We've got more people in prison 2.3 million people in prison. We spend more as a nation on defense than all the rest of the world put together. This whole nation should be a sanctuary for the world. I'm ashamed as an American to be building a fence on our southern border. That's not the America that I fought for. Our soldiers died in Vietnam in vain. You can now, John go to Hanoi and get a Baskin Robbins ice cream cone. Why do they hate us so in so many places around the world? Because we kill so many people who want them. Oh, Joe, I'll include you too. You have a certain arrogance. You wanna, You want to tell the Iraqis how to run their country. And we can get off a gas in five years, and we can get off of carbon in 10 years. All we gotta do is want to do it. Just play get out, it's their country, they're asking us to leave, and we insist on staying there. The military-industrial complex not only controls our government, lock, stock, and barrel, but they control our culture. Time to make some waves for change. I'm Mike Gravel, and I'm running for president. All
2: right, so Senator, first of all, before we we dive into the hard-hitting questions, how are you doing today?
3: Not too bad, considering my age. (laughs) Right on.
2: So here's how the Washington Post described your campaign last week. Gravel, who celebrated his 89th birthday last weekend, congratulations, happy birthday, sir. Uh, is not typically included in the count of Democratic White House hopefuls. There's a reason. He initially said he was not really running for president. He was running to get into the party's televised debates, just like he had in 2007, when he emerged from decades of obscurity to hector the Democratic field about the risks of nuclear war. And he was doing so this time at the behest of some perspicacious, I guess, teenage left-wing activists whose stated goal was not to win, but to shift the gravity of the party to the left. That has been enough to get Gravel halfway to the 65,000 donors needed to qualify for a slot in the debates—a stronger position than at least a half dozen candidates who say they're actually running. Oh, there's a lot of them. The Gravel project epitomizes what the primary has become before it can be winnowed down: a contest with a clear leader in the polls, former Vice President Joe Biden, a left-wing challenger, Senator Bernie Sanders, a few candidates with the money and staff to seriously compete and a whole lot of candidates who are not being taken seriously. A former senator who is not campaigning in any early voting states, who has outsourced his Twitter account to teenagers, fits right in. So, Senator, it's pretty awesome. Tell us about it. So why, why now and, why, and why, why this?
3: Well, there was no now. I had sort of given up uh, with respect to communicating the importance of making the American uh, voters lawmakers. And these kids call, called me on a phone of uh, David Oakes, and uh, asked me if I'd run for president. And I said, do you have any idea how old I am? <laughs> and, and he said, uh, it doesn't make any difference. It's the issues that you, that you articulate that's important. And that's why we want you in the, in the debates. Now, uh, I was not persuaded by that. What did persuade me was when they sent me a uh, a communication that included research on me and the fact that they were supporting as the primary issues the uh, creation of a legislature of the people. In the same research, uh, they had done research on Tulsi Gabbard, and she's the one that uh, I think the most of in the field. And uh, And so when I saw that they were floating... Uh, to me, the issue of uh, creating a legislature of the people, that sold me on them because that's what floats my boat. Uh, and uh, then I, they asked me if they could use my Twitter account. And uh, of course, I had the Twitter account set up when I ran for president in 08. Mm-hmm. I never used it. I never <laughs> used a Facebook page. Uh, and so I readily gave them the Twitter. We had a, had a real brouhaha with the, uh, the Twitter management people. Uh, they're using it, but we finally weathered that. And so now the, the kids, I call them, my team the kids, uh, are now using the Twitter account. And I had a friend of mine call me and said, Gravel, well, we didn't know you were t- uh, tweeting so much, but I got to tell you, it looks great what you're saying. And I says, well, what I'm saying is I'm not doing anything. And these are the kids <laughs> that are doing this.
1: Well, and and they've done a great job of building your following. I mean, you're you're up to eighty-one thousand followers. It's you almost have a thousand followers for every year you've been alive.
3: <laughs> wow, eighty-one thousand followers. I'm gonna write that.
2: <laughs> <laughs> so tell us. You mentioned you mentioned your your it floats your boat. The vision of the the a people's legislature. So tell us about what that looks like and what your vision is.
3: What well, what it is? If if you if you look at the candidates now, and if you look at the history from our founding where the founders were intent on establishing slavery in the constitution for infinity and then of course our founders were the ones that committed genocide against the indigenous population mm-hmm. of the continent you know they, everybody's so proud our founders walk on water No, they don't walk on water oh, they, they in the water and what they've done is they've set up a structure of government which uh, is ideal for elites and perpetuates that structure uh, forever and that's what i think should be overcome and the only way you can overcome it you, we can say well we've got to elect good people to office that's that's a given that's a given but but by the same token you got to take medicine statement uh, with a grain of salt and that is that these representatives that we're going to be electing are going to have the highest integrity they're going to be very responsible to the public interest, uh, and they're going to be great. Well, if you look at what representatives throughout history have been, it's far from great. Oh, we've had some great ones, uh, of course, but, but that's not been the norm in, uh, in representative government.
1: You've got a lot of Duncan Hunters for every Bernie Sanders out there, right?
3: <laughs> yes, and then some, <laughs> and then some. But... What I came upon is asking the question, uh, how can we make any changes? Everybody campaigns they're going to make changes. They're not. They're talking about implementing policy questions. Mm -hmm. What I'm talking about is a structural change uh, in representative government. And so when when you look at that, nobody's touching it at all. And what I'm talking about, most of them don't even understand. But when you look at the situation, there's only two venues. Only two, to bring about fundamental change. One is the government, which really obviously obviously doesn't want to bring about change, because this is a device that permits the elites to govern our society. Now, when you look at the people, and you, what, what can the people do? Well, the people are stuck, because nothing was ever put in the Constitution to know that they have a, a superior right to representatives, to uh, to change the constitution, and now the task becomes: How can we enact a a process that will permit the people to make the decision to to become lawmakers? Now, laws that's the central core of civilization. That's the central core of any government. We live by laws. We must either obey the law or repeal the law. Now. There's no provision. In fact, the provision in the Constitution is a monopoly for representatives to make laws. A monopoly. Now, we must break that monopoly, and the way we do that is we come forward with a, a an election, a national election. Let's say the three of you, myself, we form a group. Uh, we call it Philadelphia Two. We don't incorporate, because the minute we touch the government, the government will use that as a device to sabotage our efforts. And that's been the history of direct democracy uh, ever since it's been thought of. So so now we have a a device that we put before the people in a national election. And that means we've got to raise several hundred million dollars to do this. But in this national election, the people will be able to vote to empower themselves uh, and will be able to do what we did when we created our government, is to buy into the electoral process that permitted the people to vote on this. So those two elements uh, were used in Article 7 of the Constitution, which said that when, when the conventions of nine states ratify this Constitution, it becomes the law of the land. Well, that was a prima facie case of being illegal because we already had a confederation that you're going to make changes uh, with uh, with un- unanimity.
1: So are, are, are you, just for clarity, are, are you talking about more or less invalidating the Constitution?
3: No, quite the contrary. Amending it. No, no, The, the, the legislative package that I put forth is an amendment to the Constitution and a, a federal act, a legislative procedures act, because to empower the people... Without putting in legislative procedures, you create anarchy mm-hmm. because uh, the lawmaking is very serious and it must be done very deliberatively, and that's the structure that various uh, legislatures have, and what what I've experienced directly, and uh, and what I've devised uh, in in this legislation, which is an amendment and a fe- accompanying federal act. So when you vote. To empower the people you're voting for both of these uh, legislative acts the amendment and the other now the reason why we don't put uh, the legislative procedures in the amendment it would just clutter it up it's just it's just too much the, the the amendment must be very succinct and very general in terms of human policy but the implementation of that power that the people have must be done with great deliberation, and I go through this process, which is far superior, far superior mm. in, uh, in, uh, in all aspects uh, than the present process we have in Congress and in other legislatures.
0: So essentially what you're proposing is a mechanism to give ordinary citizens a direct voice in the legislation that the federal government acts on.
3: The direct voice is is lawmaking. Because here, as we accept that law's is the core, then what the people have to be able to do is to be able to make laws. Now, that, that's an intricate process, which I have outlined in great detail. But that's exactly what it is. The people are brought into the operation of government in the only venue that that can be done, the legislative venue. We can, we can have several hundred million people participate in that venue. But we can't have that in the executive venue or the judiciary venue. And so it's very critical that, that the people understand this. But now what's happened to the people is they've been dumbed down by their leadership to, to the belief that you're not competent enough to govern yourself. You've got to give your power to these representatives who, of course, are manipulating you to vote for them. And, of course, got their hand out to the elites to pay for the election.
1: Amen. Well, so if if you were to implement a, a situation where it almost sounds like you're talking about national referendums, if you were to implement such a system, would you would you trust that those same bad actors who are who are without dispute taking advantage of the legislators now by you know funding their elections and private cocktail parties and big events that they wouldn't then just shift their focus to the more susceptible voters among us? Do you, do you know a what few,
3: I mean? a few points that I want to address. One is, referendum is when the government refers a legislative matter to the people to decide on. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about a legislature of the people where people can come forward as individuals, uh, propose legislation, and have it go through the process. Uh, the other point that you raise, what you're saying is that you think that once we equip the people to make laws, that the same uh, rules of the road will apply with respect to the uh, elites pumping money into the legislative process. Well, that's not going to happen, not by a long shot. Secondly, it's... Why, why is that? Why, why well, wouldn't it happen? I'm going to okay. point that out to you. Let's say for a moment we have an issue that is going to become law that the people overwhelmingly vote for this. Mm-hmm. But it's the same thing that the elites want. So what is it? Did the elites buy the public? Or did the public reason out that on that particular issue, that's something they wanted, and voted for it in a majoritarian fashion. But also the elites wanted it. So uh, so, so understand, we in this constitutional amendment that we'll be voting for, only a natural person only a natural person can get involved in funding uh, and introducing laws,
2: as opposed to a corporation or an, a lobbying or a entity or something
1: like that. They're, the
3: they're all out. They're all out. Forget it. We this use of the word "natural person" just takes care of the whole deal. You empty out the tub and the bathwater and the whole thing. So
1: you're you're preempting, say, Citizens United. Pardon, Citizens that.
2: United too. They're, they're Which,
3: academic. They're academic at this point. In fact. Let me point out that uh, supposing uh, the people go ahead and uh, and, and bring this about, they vote for it, we now have a legislature of the people. And the legislature enacts laws that all of a sudden the Supreme Court continues to outlaw these laws.
0: Mm -hmm.
3: Now, they'll do that once, but only once, because the next proposal is going to be, a constitutional amendment to do away with the Supreme Court. Hey. Now, that that may sound radical to you, but when the people come into the operation of government, they come in as the sovereign. The legislatures, the representatives, they're there at the behest of the sovereign. So what's gonna happen when we now bring the people into the operation of government, that the representative government will shape up to an unbelievable degree Be much more competent, do a much better job because they know that the people who are now party to the process of lawmaking have the power to to wipe out the whole thing.
2: There actually be some accountability.
3: That's that's right. But but understand. Let's go back to the concept. Who are the sovereigns? The people. How did you become a sovereign? Simple. By being born. By being born. And then you're guided to adulthood, so that at that point in time, you now have are responsible for your actions as a civic citizen in society. So when you when you analyze all these elements of it, it a lot of things get cleared up. But keep in mind, it took me twenty five to thirty years to analyze all this these elements to put them in proper order, so that it could function effectively. I'm very proud of that, and I'm very proud of the people over time that have helped me. But here, I'll give you an example. Dr. Richard Parker at uh, Harvard. Mm -hmm. Uh, I I was able to hold a conference, and he was one of the persons giving testimony. The first words out of his mouth was, there is no superior power to the people. Really think on that statement. And, and it opens up a whole vista of possibilities for human governance. So,
1: if you if you do away with something like the Supreme Court, and, and uh, granted, Josh and I have somewhat uh, vested interests and in probably uh, myopic views of this because we're both attorneys, as is uh, Justin. If you do away with the Supreme Court and and you have and you have con- you have contentious. Uh, you have contentious arguments between people about how laws are to be applied or if the people do enact something truly barbaric, I mean, to take it to the most extreme logical extension, you know, slavery is now legal again and the majority of the people decide that's what they want. How do you resolve those disputes in your system?
3: Well, one one thing, we can set up another dispute mechanism. This isn't the only mechanism you have uh, and, and, and the participation. I, for one, believe we should have term limits for all judges, meaning that the Supreme Court judge serves 12 years and you're out. Now the court, at, at the federal level, you, you have a judge, uh, If you, the good judges, they would probably get reappointed to the Court of Appeals. So they would serve their 12-year limitation, go to the Court of Appeals for another 12 years, and if and at the best of those groups are appointed to the Supreme Court, then they would have another 12 years. But basically, across the board, uh, these judges would all be limited to 12 years, uh, and there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, that I, that's an ideal number. That's more than enough time the, to to uh, do the right. Because within two years, you'll have your uh, you'll you'll be rocking and rolling as a judge. Uh, now, what what happens is you're going to have a rapid turnover. And that's what we need in the judiciary, as we need in politics. Because I would have term limits on politicians too. But what would happen is is you'd see more mature judges putting themselves up to be nominated to be either on a court of appeals or on the Supreme Court. And 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 of course, you don't get these judges that come in, they're whiz kids, and all of a sudden they're there for forty years. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and e- even the and see what happens is that if you got the best uh, Brandeis, you know, he probably would be 12 here, 12 there, and 12 there. So it would be 36 years. That's more than enough. Then he can take his scholarship uh, back to academe and make his contributions there. So we're not denying anybody with term limits the con- making contributions to society. We're just making the realization very accurately that power corrupts, and power corrupts everybody, yeah. from the physical to the intellectual. And what and what you see in the corruption of the judi- judiciary, in my mind, is the corruption of the intellect.
2: Well said. The uh, so the other, the other, the other major, I guess, calling it an issue is a little oversimplification. But the other, the other main proposition you you stand for that you've you've gained you've gained notoriety for, uh, you've got a you know just like the president, you've got a. Simple three-word, three-syllable slogan right at the top of your banner that animates everything, but it's not build the wall, it's no more wars. So tell, tell us about that.
3: There's a Pope uh, back several generations who who really articulated it best when he said when he opened up this and when he started his encyclical, uh, the title of it was War No More. The it, it just strikes me as insane that we take our youth we train them to kill other human beings so they become expert at it and then we send them out to kill other human beings and then they come up come home and they got PTSD they're they're maladjusted because what we've done is we've assaulted frontally we've assaulted their moral id their their moral core and and there's something wrong with that i've always felt ever from, from childhood that the thought of one person killing another person is insane. And you've heard the cliche, you know, kill one person is it's murder, kill a 100 million, well that's foreign policy. Mm-hmm. We have to change that whole approach uh, to, towards war. War is proof, and I make this case in this book that I'm presently writing, war is proof that representative government doesn't work. It just doesn't work. Because when you have to uh, rely on extreme violence to address the shortcomings of representative government, something is really, really wrong. And uh, and, and in our policies, uh, it goes to extremes where literally we have a suicide pact to destroy the planet. And and if you want me to define that, I'd be happy to. <laughs>
2: <laughs> so you, became, you, know, you became a national figure uh, during the Vietnam War. Listeners, if you, if you don't know what the Pentagon Papers are, Google them.
3: Basically, it just yeah. shows
2: that
1: we were not just bombing Vietnam. We expanded our scope and we're bombing Cambodia, Laos, yeah. and
2: all parts of Southeast Asia that we thought were bad. It seems like nothing has really changed. You know, we're in we're in more wars uh, than most people can name. Most people are even aware of the military action going on in, you know, perhaps a dozen countries, approximately. Going on to the, your larger themes here, what does your ideal American diplomacy look like and how do you dismantle the military-industrial complex, when you, when you talk about it?
3: The dismantling, of, of course, I would rely on Tulsi's uh, council in that regard, but I have my own thoughts on uh, dismantling the military-industrial complex. One uh, it, it, it's uh, who is a threat to us? The, now, uh, you're in Hawaii, uh, you're within on the edge, uh, the eastern edge of the uh, Asian Pacific, well, who's a threat to you in Hawaii you've you you can not sleep at night because somebody's going to kill you who's going to kill you we did I have, have a, a, we, we did, did have a nu- false alarm yeah.
1: nuclear missile false alarm <laughs> and i was pretty sure it was north korea at the time <laughs> yeah
3: always it? but you're wrong you're wrong why would north korea want to attack hawaii when it means that north korea will be committing suicide not only committing suicide they'll be we will be committing suicide by our toleration of them let me give you an example of how that works. There's eight countries that have nuclear capability. The United States is the only one that I know that has a first strike policy to use those nukes. Now, when you say uh, nukes, what do you mean? If, a, if North Korea were to attack us, they, of course, would want to use it with 10, 20, 30, uh, 30 nukes. Otherwise, they're not going to be able to do much damage. The minute they do that, we don't need a retaliation because they have triggered a nuclear winter and we're all going to die. So that was my
1: thought during that nuclear missile false alarm is we're all going to die.
3: Yeah. But the false alarm is, is your own anxiety uh, and the anxiety of the, of the media, which I question in this regard because the Kim Jong-un has not struck me as a suicidal person. And he's not struck me as he's missed any meals lately. (laughs) No. As as so so our sanctions mean nothing to him. Who suffers the sanctions? And and in my mind, sanctions are a way of war. And so in my mind, we sanction him. Who suffers? It's the poor in the middle class. And so and so nothing changes. He strengthened his position by pointing to us as the enemy. Mm-hmm. No, the way to solve the problem with North Korea is to turn around and sign a peace treaty ending the war that's still being waged. And, that's and true. so why is the United States so reluctant to sign a peace treaty? I don't understand that. I truthfully don't. And does it really advantage North Korea to enter into a peace treaty? That would peace treaty would bind them as much as it would bind us. So. This is stupid foreign policy. Secondly, uh, I spent about three or four months in South Korea uh, in the last decade. Uh, and uh, I've concluded in talking with scholars over there that, hey, there's no reason why we need any military troops in uh, in South Korea. The, the nation of South Korea is essentially more prosperous, more populous, more successful than North Korea. Mm-hmm. So who would be a real threat? Uh, we always talk about the, the missiles that are lined up on the North Korean border. We don't talk about the missiles that are lined up on the South Korean border. Mm. because the, And so we have a greater capability in South Korea than North. So th- do another thing. Just do away with the troops there. We don't need American troops there. It, quote, it's a tripwire, so to speak, that if they attack... And they kill those Americans. Well, killing Americans is so sacrosanct that we'd go to war with anybody over that.
0: Mm-hmm. But
3: but that's but that's the purpose of it. We don't need a tripwire there. If they were to attack, uh, and and they wouldn't, they, they wouldn't because attacking South Korea is committing suicide. Let's get back to to this whole thesis that if any country unloads their nuclear uh, capability on another country, it's a global winter it's a it's a nuclear winter and we're all going to die now register that so here here you got the pentagon right now that's spending as a, a 1.7 trillion dollars on refurbishing our nuclear arsenal now if you know something about the pentagon the, you know they're into the cost overrun business and so that 1.7 trillion is not that it's more like plus that they're spending on refurbishing our nuclear arsenal. Now, here's the kicker to that. That arsenal is not usable. We can't use it because the minute we use it, we trigger a nuclear winter, which obliterates the the planet. So think of the logic of this. Our leadership right now is spending upwards of $3 trillion, denying that money's to education to healthcare to infrastructure and using that money on weapons that can't be used
2: well the defense contractors need their cut too you know lockheed raytheon like you see stock prices they're they know what they're doing
3: of course of course which means they're they're manufacturing suicide pills for us and making profits off of it and we're too dumb as as citizens or as leaders to do anything about it you don't even hear anybody talking literally about this nuclear problem uh, in the debates, and 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 Tulsi is the only one, and Bernie, to a degree, is the only one that's addressing the military-industrial complex and its excesses. And she's she's really well grounded in that. She's got six years on Armed Services and on the Foreign Relations Committee, and. And I got to tell you, one of the, we just saw her the other evening. Um, and and this friend of mine, uh, a very intelligent person, uh PhD in statistics, believe it. And she was not aware of Tulsi. And I'd been touting Tulsi to her. And all of a sudden she saw Tulsi and she said, my God. And same thing as I say, Tulsi has gravitas. Uh, and that's not the best word, but it's the only word I can think of. She's unflappable, she's direct, she's understanding. And in my mind, she will become an a great president at some point in her career. But I didn't want to uh, you know her better than I do, but let's go back to the suicide pill that the military industrial complex or this is what you call a suicide potion that they're they're manufacturing with more than three trillion dollars.
1: Well, with Tulsi has gravitas, I, I think we're going to have to say that you have Gravel-toss. Uh, I, I just coined that term, and feel free to use it as much as you'd like. And continuing on with the, with the theme of no more wars, did you see the headline that President Trump is planning to pardon convicted war criminals on Memorial Day?
3: Oh, God. <laughs> shades, shades of Obama, You know where every Tuesday some military officers would come to the White House and they'd go over a list of who they're going to assassinate so uh you know now that's the democratic president <laughs> now we got we got a narcissistic fool at the helm today and so what can we expect uh it, you know it doesn't surprise me uh, i don't know as it's consistent because there's no consistency with trump so he could change his policies tomorrow uh, uh on a whim mm-hmm. that he he tweets on a whim and so everything is on the wind. And of course he doesn't read. And so he's not terribly well grounded historically in events. Uh, he's got a smattering of that. But, but when it comes to really thinking out the issues, he doesn't have that capacity at all.
1: Senator, um, I'm I'm curious. We're talking on the theme again of no more wars. If we were to say, you know, do away with the concept of war, how would you handle something like a, you know, like the ensuing operations that happen in the wake of any of the mass atrocities that we found ourselves in in the 20th century? Like, how, how would you handle aggression of one country against another? Is war necessary in your mind there? Or,
3: no, 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 no I, I don't buy like Obama that there's the necessary kind of war, not at all. You're, you're starting down the road with a problem when when you really have to exam, examine its origination and that's where the problem should be. I, I fault Woodrow Wilson to a terrible degree. I mean, he, he really has plunged society into interminable wars when he went into the First World War. But understand, and of course the product of the First World War was a slight maturation in creating the League of Nations, which was poorly structured. Mm -hmm. And then after the Second World War, you had the creation of the United Nations, which also was poorly structured, because Roosevelt focused on the ill of colonialism and not the ill of national state, nation-state determination. No, what has to happen if you're going to have peace, and it's the only way you're going to have peace, is you can take a page from our book, you can take a page from the British book. Our book is very simple, that when the When our uh, colonial confederation in the uh, 1760s and 70s was falling apart, uh, when New York was going to war with with, uh, Connecticut, and you name it, they each had, they coined their own money, they coined, they were all sovereign, and, and the system wasn't working. And who were going to be the most damaged? That would be the people of wealth, the leaders. Because they got more to lose than the people at the bottom who are poor. Mm-hmm. So what did they decide to do? They were constricted by the lack of sovereignty or the, the excess of sovereignty at the nation-state level. So what did they do? They formed the Federation. That's what's called the United States. And they formed the Constitution and denied. Uh, they should have denied totally states' rights, but they essentially denied... The, the power of the states to go to war, to coin money, to all of that was limited. So now, if you look at the world and you see what's, what, where we're structured, and you say, well, I want peace because you raise the question, crazy, crazy Charlie over here is going to attack crazy Jane. No, what you do is you have to have a form of global governance. Uh, to, And then what would happen is that the nation states as they would enter into this. Now this could be done very simply by a majority of the OECD countries. Because when you have a majority of OECD countries, you control the world totally, totally. So now what you would do is as the OECD countries come in to this new organization, which we'll call the United Nations, the problem is we'll take away the veto power of the Security Council so that nobody has veto over the whole thing. We would take the General Assembly and turn it into a real democratic process where representation would be based upon population. And then we would have a, quote, a kind of Security Council or an executive chamber wherein uh, the, the, the policies, the detailed policies, will be developed. And so now a country coming into this situation would, would have to come into. Because the majority of the OECD countries, which is the global economy, either you stay outside and starve, or you come in and adhere to the new criteria. The new criteria would be that you would see all of your uh, war-making powers Mm -hmm. and all of your war-making artillery. So the United States with our 100-plus bases around the world, well, we would close those bases and turn them over to the new United Nations. And we would then see, so the United Nations would have an Air Force, an Army, and a Navy. They don't have a Navy, they don't have an Air Force, they just have a blue helmet, which is very inadequate to deal with the, with the altercations that take place on the planet. So with this power, seated, now you'd say, well, God, uh, these rednecks, we're, we're Americans, how dare we even think that we're going to give up these, uh, these powers? But well, we did it in 1777, 78, and uh, 1786, so what's so magic about giving up those powers today? And, uh, but that's the only, there's no other way to bring about world peace. That's the only way to do it, is to have, have a world federation where the war-making capabilities at the nation-state level have been taken away from the nation-states. And that these war-making capabilities, or I would prefer to call the policing capabilities, would now rest with the United Nations, extremely reconstituted from its present structure.
1: Well, so but, how would you how would you compel? I mean, I, I know you said you'd leave if you took the OECD countries, and they were the first uh, ratifiers of this new global governance structure. Um, that you would leave the others out in the in the cold, uh, or I think I think you said leave the others to starve, and and I have two questions on that. The first is if we're taking away war, and I believe you said earlier that sanctions are a form of war, uh, aren't you therefore kind of committing war or, or you know waging war on these outlier countries? And then secondly, um, how do you compel a, a state with a enmeshed governmental structure that is completely antithetical to the idea of of democracy, uh, direct democracy, representative democracy, what have you, like China, who also happens to be the largest manufacturer of goods in the world. That, you know, if we, if we, everybody turned away from them, it would hurt us as much as China.
3: Well, first off, uh, you, the only answer to that question is uh, uh, analyzing a parallel of history. That's the only thing you can do. So, what caused Connecticut? To accept uh, the, uh, the the new federated the new structure of our country, where our uh, Connecticut could not coin its money, could not be uh, totally free to perform every kind of trade activity it wanted. Uh, so wh- what what happened then? Was there some magic moment that uh, that all of a sudden uh, you had a, a burst of sanity? Although. It it was it had clay feet because that burst of sanity included it included slavery and, and other mm-hmm. aspects. So so no, the, the parallel is there. The parallel is there. Once you take away the sovereign, the the nation state sovereignty, which is pre- presently viewed as unlimited, once you accept that theory that you cannot have nation state sovereignty unlimited because it will destroy the planet. Now, for for you you obviously and I agree, what's it gonna take? Because nobody that I know in the government is talking about this.
1: Well and, and elites are, are pretty reluctant to normally cede any sort of power. And especially when you start adding in the the cultural the cultural friction of, you know, Brunei ceding power to a global government when they're a very restrictive form of, of we're governance.
2: We're currently focused on it, sound, it sounds like on, President Trump is currently focused on getting uh, Maduro in Venezuela and the Ayatollahs in Iran to cede power, so we don't know what's going on with that. Sure. So,
3: well, but that's irrelevant. Yeah. That, that's irrelevant to what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is, is a voluntary decision by the a, a major number of people in the world who happen to be the wealthiest, uh, and that includes the uh, elites, because it was the elites that made the, the, uh, the change in our government in 1787. Uh, elites were at the convention, and so they made the decision to take away this power of the states that they were elites in, and transferred their elitism into a federal process. So now here, you can I can say like you that uh, I don't see anything on the horizon to do this. So probably what what happened after the First World War was the United was the uh, League of Nations. What happened after the Second World War uh, was the United Nations. Do we need another global uh, cataclysmic event? to be able to mature as a society that we have to outlaw war by creating a federated global government.
1: It feels like we're heading that way.
3: <laughs> it That's my conclusion too. That's my conclusion too. That, uh, that there's gonna be some kind of a cataclysmic event it, and it could be, it could be the onrush of the environmental problem because that's suicidal too. It's just that it's over a longer arc of history uh, to commit suicide. And now the other which of course the whole digital situation which really we 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 used to just have two elements to a suicide and that was the nuclear and the environment. Now we got the digital. We got three elements that could take us to a suicide level at the planetary level. Now if if this were to happen and we were short of that then that's the cataclysmic event that may cause the world to, to all, of sudden, all of a sudden mature. And it'll cause the elites of the world, because it was the elites of the United States that chose to create a government that they control. Now, what we would have, what's possible, and I fantasize over this, and it's a fantasy, nothing more than that at this point, <laughs> if we were to empower the American people to make laws, what would stop them in their wisdom to say, "Hey, let's let's move this to the, to the global level"? If the technology is uh, is available for us, and uh, and this is what I uh, not only imply but I certify that uh, the technology is there for the people, a nation of about three hundred million people, to make laws in partnership with representative government, then why not have this same technology a- able for the people of the world to make laws one of the shortcomings of european union was that it's a top down mm. problem and very very good i i applaud that it was top down but what they never were able to do was to transfer the elements of that top down power to a bottom up power and that's the reason why you see such frustration in europe over uh, should we or shouldn't we be party uh, to the European Union? I think they should be party to the union. And maybe what this Brexit problem is going to do is to generate a re-examination of the structures that they're employing and make them more bottom up. One of the ways that that can be done is empowering the people to make laws.
2: So shifting shifting gear to the last set of questions, uh, you know, we're talking we're talking about. Digital suicide and short-term cataclysmic events. Uh, the, the Democratic primary of 2020. So we've heard about your, we've heard your thoughts on you know Tulsi and a little bit on Bernie. Uh, let's talk about some of your other competitors because we just
3: wanted to get your say, Mister
2: Joe Biden. <laughs>
3: uh, well, Joe's a nice guy. I served with him. I know him very well, uh, and he's a nice guy. But uh, what a, nice guy is not a criteria. Of course, it is. The media makes it a criteria. But in point of fact, it's not a criteria for choosing a leader. What you choose a leader for is what the ideological beliefs that person has that the, that person would implement once uh, once he's in power. And Joe, if you look at his record, uh, is terrible, has a terrible record.
1: Preaching to the choir on that one.
3: Okay, good. And we don't need to go on beyond that. But what, what will happen is that The only reason Joe is getting all this attention is because he's not a threat. In fact, he's worse than he's not a threat. He's a puppet of the military-industrial complex. Why does Buttigieg get all this attention? He's not a threat to the military-industrial complex. Why is it that Tulsi and Bernie... Now, Bernie has traction because he's maintained it from the last go around. But uh, why does Tulsi have such tra- traction difficulty? Obviously, she's a threat to the military-industrial complex, and mainstream media is not going to pull her forward as mainstream media is trying to do with Biden and Buttigieg and the and few But basically, those are the two that mainstream media is pushing forward uh, at the behest of the interests of the military-industrial complex.
1: So, speaking of, you, you mentioned Pete Buttigieg, you were in the new in the news last week. Um, you said you misspoke. Uh, this is I'm quoting uh, The Hill uh, that you you misspoke when you said that 2020 presidential hopeful Pete Buttigieg mostly campaigns quote on the fact that he's gay. Can you like give some color to that? Because I, I, well, I,
3: first off, I didn't misspoke. I believe that. Okay, I don't I don't know who said I misspoke. I didn't misspoke. But I read out there some things that I've said that uh, I can't believe it. How, where this came from? So this uh, th- this is what uh, Trump keeps talking about fake news. So no, I didn't misspoke. There's no question that was a, a major element in him raising money, and and there's good reason for it. That the gay community, which has suffered such discrimination in the past, they're proud as punch that they got an intelligent and and he's intelligent. That they got an, an intelligent candidate, but. Why is he so acceptable? Because he doesn't say anything, and and that is so music to the ears of the military-industrial complex, because that means that he's going to be a puppet, and so would Biden be a puppet, and so that so any anybody who's running for office who doesn't articulate the shortcomings of the military-industrial complex in robbing money from our essential uh, civic obligations. Uh, Means that they're going to be puppets to the system that we've had, and that's what we've had uh, since the Second World War. By and large, the leadership has been a bunch of puppets to the military-industrial complex.
1: I, I, I guess I, I would just want to follow. I mean, if I can paraphrase what you're saying, is it sounds like you're saying that you're you're not begrudging Buttigieg for being gay and being out as a candidate, but more that that the fact. Is that you're saying? It's, it almost sounds like you're saying his policy platforms aren't substantial enough on their own. That more that his number one draw is that he's gay, and, and I think you had a. Is is that kind of right? Am I am I understanding no, that? No,
3: no. first off, uh, you know I, I resent it that he's that uh, he's made a big issue of this. Uh, it's people like myself, that uh, for. 30 years, 50 years, when I was in the Senate, that I would make statements to gay people, come out of the closet and fight for your rights. Uh, I was the only one, the only one, a decade ago, that was calling for the legitimacy of same-sex marriage. Now, I was the only one, and I was in the parade, the gay, the gay rights parade in San Francisco. I didn't see or judge. I looked around, and I didn't see him there. So I sort of resent that people like myself, that we're straight, put our our careers on the line to bring about justice for them and their civil rights, and now they would just say, "Well, may, maybe uh, Gravel uh, you know, is a little weak on this area." Hell no! I did more to bring about uh, a revolution in our thinking with respect to LGBT rights than did Peter. Uh, and so, what I resent about him and. And I made this comment, which was more of a reflection on the situation. But what I resent about him is that he thinks that the commutation of Chelsea Manning's sentence of 35 years was a mistake. Boy, I don't know where he, where the hell he's coming from. I know he's been in the service. I'd like to see him talk about the details of his service. But there's nobody that I know of uh, who's been superior. She she was superior to Ellsberg myself and a whole host of others in releasing secret information that showed malfeasance and criminality on the part of American military forces and so that's patriotism in my mind and and so for for her to get uh, sentenced to under the Obama administration who did more to prosecute whistleblowers than any other president in our history and so. He must have had a pang of guilt to com- commute her sentence. And now, of course, she's in jail because she won't testify before a grand jury uh, to questions they might have about Julian Assange. Uh, and he's the other one. Uh, and uh, Julian Assange and Snowden. So Snowden, Assange, and Chelsea Manning, in my mind, are the greatest heroes we've seen in the last generation. And uh, and so for. For Peter to make a comment that uh, there, there's something wrong with this person who just had a sex change uh, operation in a, in in prison, and there's something wrong where he thinks that she did wrong by telling the truth to the American people. Whistleblowers are the only thing we have that's saving our democracy right now. What more can I say?
1: Well put. Yeah, I, I i don't think that I don't think that Josh or myself uh, disagree that. Oh no, I
3: can tell you don't disagree, otherwise you wouldn't be having me
1: on your program. <laughs> yeah, well, we <laughs> we certainly don't disagree that uh, that Chelsea Manning is uh, an absolute martyr right now. That she's being tortured and has been tortured uh, at the hands of the military industrial complex, and to provide red meat for uh, the bases of uh, various people who haven't done enough to end foreign wars. I would. I just wanted to clarify the comments on Buttigieg because, as a as a millennial voter, um, I didn't. I don't personally feel that he's his primary position has been. Oh, I'm gay, and that's why I'm important. It's been, as I've seen it, it's been more of a. I'm fantastically brilliant. I'm eminently capable of doing this this job. I'm certainly better than who you've got in there right now, and I wanted to get. I wanted to get some nuance on the letter that had been published because I had a hunch that it wasn't as it wasn't intentionally trying to be uh it wasn't intentionally antagonistic of the gay community as I think the media painted the it media, to be.
2: If certainly oversimplified.
1: Yeah, the, I think the I wanted to get nuance on the position and nuance isn't popular and it's and it's tough to ask questions about because you know every person has their own their own thoughts and their own processes they go through but Thank you for thank you for developing that a little well, bit more for our the listeners.
3: The reason why I'm so candid on that is because my record is, is so uh, so extreme. Uh, you know, the, 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 I mean, you
1: read the Pentagon Papers into the Congressional Record. You have never oh, been yeah. one for
2: small actions. Your credit your credentials are pretty uh, pretty legit.
3: Yeah, that's right. My, uh, the uh, my bona fides. Better is, Yes, go. thank you. Yes. Uh, is is unquestionable. And so, so I feel that I'm able to, to make observations that are accurate uh, and they're not malicious. But uh, the observation that I, really bothers me is his attitude towards a person who, uh, if you look closely, uh, is more of a patriot than anybody on the scene. Uh, because when you, when you are sworn into office anywhere, within the American establishment, you you swear to uphold the Constitution of the United States. Not the generals, not the admirals. It's the Constitution. And so when the generals and admirals are lying and you bring that to the public's attention, that's a patriotic act in the extreme. And that's what she's done. uh, And and to suffer the consequences uh, as a result of that, uh, that are meted by the general public because I think if you took a uh, a poll right now, they would not be support, that supportive of Chelsea Manning. But they should be. They should be. But by the same token, the public has been dumbed down by the military-industrial complex so that it doesn't have the real ability to evaluate what's going on. And so you get them, what, 45% of the people think that it's okay uh I've, I've, to go to war or what have you but it, it's wrong and they haven't thought of it they it's a little bit like this guy that appeared on tv with over brexit he he owned a fleet of trucks and he voted for exit and all of a sudden he's now being damaged in his business and he's sitting there He obviously an intelligent person and he's standing there talking to the interviewer and he says you know I didn't realize that my vote would do me so much harm. <laughs> uh, well, but that, but that's like in the United States. Sure. Uh, you know, when when we when we de, we do these crazy things, like here, the, the fact that uh, Iran is a threat to us, uh, or that uh, Venezuela is a threat to us, or North Korea is a threat to us, this is American propaganda at its worst. Uh, because and now with the digital, when you look at the it's the Chinese, it's the Russian, they're doing all these terrible things to us digitally. Who the hell developed the digital abilities? Sure. They come from us. It's like with the nuclear deal. You know, all these people, who are terrible people, they got nuclear capability. Well, where do you think that all came from? Us, the United States of America. And so when you take our media, that constantly drumbeats into our heads a, a bias uh, against, other people who do exactly what we've taught them to do it is is really an abomination.
2: You've given us a lot to you've given us a lot to chew on. Our audience a lot to chew on. Uh, before, let's have a, a slightly more lighthearted question. I think. Uh,
3: let's be lighthearted. Yeah,
2: lighthearted. <laughs> so you are let's say you're sailing back and forth between San Francisco and Alaska, and you are shipwrecked tragically and you're stranded on a desert island but fortunately you can bring one book one movie and one album that you managed to get off the ship just in time what
3: are what is your book movie and album the book is uh, the uh, anatomy of peace by Emery Reeve published in 1946 uh, the, the television the, my favorite movie out of Africa okay <laughs> it's such, a, such a romance I like that just sure. bathe in that and then what's the last thing? Uh, you
1: have one album. Oh, the album.
3: Uh, I'd be torn between uh, Edith Piaf, Charles Aznavour, uh, or Frank Sinatra.
1: All right. Classics. Yeah, Very sounds
3: strong. good. I listen to more Mozart than anything else. But, <laughs> uh,
2: <laughs> okay. That's what I listen to at work,
1: actually. I listen so, to Mozart.
2: Yeah, uh, so National Endowment for the Arts funding, we can safely bet, would under a Gravel presidency would be fully restored. Oh, not only that.
3: It, it's vital, it's vital to human education. One of the things that'd be restored is we would do like uh, Finland. We would pay people to go to school, whether you're 60 years old or whether you're three years that old. That sounds nice, awesome. And, and so the the arts is, is the expression uh, of ourselves beyond our cognition. Uh, and, and I'm not an artist. Well, I, that's not so. Uh, I'm a politician. And I've handled my political career like art, and I think that the supreme kind of politician is a person that can tell you to go to hell and make you look forward to the trip.
1: <laughs> so which, uh, which, yeah, a different kind of a. Some people call him a bullshit artist. Sometimes.
3: Huh. Which... Well, you've got to be that too. You yeah. Be...
2: <laughs> so, uh, if you had, so which which artist uh, best describes your political career? Hopefully, not Jackson Pollock. You throw everything, see what it sticks. No,
0: well, uh,
3: which artist? Yeah, uh, you mean physical artists? Any kind? Or,
2: any kind, music,
3: physical. Well, I, th- I think that uh, *Guernica* uh, by Pablo uh, uh, Picasso. Public, uh, yeah, what a, a senior moment! Yeah. <laughs> uh, no, the *Guernica* is the one that uh, just disturbs me the most, uh, and it's so accurate to human civilization. Yeah,
2: well said. Well, Senator, any are there any final thoughts? Any last words of wisdom? Any yeah, anything
3: all. at all? There's we got to get Tulsi elected. That's the first final thought I have. The second final thought is I'm just delighted that you've had me on your program. Uh, Thank you, Senator. One of the things that you find in public office, and you have a modest celebrity at uh, celebrity status, uh, when when the point of fact we don't, I don't understand the extension of myself. <laughs> I don't, and 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 that's candid, and I I don't think that. Anybody else who has any modicum of celebrity nature understands the extension of themselves. Here, I'll give you an example. Uh, Justin, through his, uh, his mother-in-law, uh, wanted to meet me. Well, I'm flattered that he would want to meet me. And so when Whitney brought that to my attention, I said, fine, let's go. Uh, I'm not all that sociable. <laughs> I'm, like, I'm like Bernie Sanders. I, I, I love people in the abstract.
2: Thing. I care about people. I, want, I care about society. I care about civilization. I want to make people's lives better, but I don't want to have to talk to them. Sounds like, uh, yes, sounds like you and Josh would get along right. very well.
3: And, and, and you know something? and it's, it's with that attitude that you can become a little more creative yeah. in the abstract. And that's what I've landed on, the, this answer. And, and I fully understand and accept that the that, that the position I have in bringing the people in as lawmakers is the answer to global governance. Period. I had a photographer uh, come to the house the other day, and he is a the kid. wasn't 29 years old. He's from Hollywood. He does photographs for the stars and the uh, big deals, and so he was hired by our kids in New York to come in to uh, come in and photograph me. He walked in the door and said, "He's got all his paraphernalia." And he says, Senator, you got it. And the minute he said that, I knew what he meant. and And I've experienced this at uh, many times in my life that some people, when you bring up the fact that the people have there's only two venues, and it's the people that come and and they get it. The earth explained it to him, they get it. And at some point when we have this election, uh, we'll have we'll hit critical mass. And when that happens, Katie bar the door, the the elites won't be able to overcome and overturn the will of the people once they have a vehicle to express it.
1: From your lips to God's ears, ladies and gentlemen, Senator Mike Gravel. Thank Hashtag you again, Senator Hashtag, Hashtag Gravel Gang. Yeah.
2: Folks, we need to get him on the debate stage. If you want to donate, how can they find your
1: $1. website?
3: One dollar. One dollar. That's all you need. Where
1: do they where do they find you? Uh
3: MikeGravel
1: Mike. O-R-G. That's g-r-a-v-e-l Mike Uh thank you again senator uh so much and hopefully hope to you on stage. yeah best of luck.
0: Thank you thank you for having me. And thank I, you senator. I, Very I hope
3: to visit time. the paradise of Hawaii uh, within the next uh, year. Or if so. you do
1: drinks are on us. Yep.
3: I'll <laughs> well, I'll check in, I'll check in with Justin if I do. Okay. okay. Thank
1: good. you senator. Thanks
3: thank sir. You, senator. Thank you. Bye bye. Google
0: Wave. Wave.